Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, December the 21st, 2022. Trying to figure out economics is a fool's game, certainly um, for most of us, just judging from the Wall Street Journal today, one of America's most respected business newspapers. Uh, the news is always so confusing. On the one hand, <clears throat> markets are up. On the other hand, home sales are down. Tenth straight month of de decline. It's really hard for non-economists to figure out broad uh, economic news of one kind or another. Uh, whether the news is good or bad. And that's certainly true in terms of trying to figure out what kind of economic year it's been in 2022. So I'm thrilled. I'm no expert. But my guest today, Jay Bradford DeLong, is one of America's leading economists. He teaches economics uh, at UC Berkeley, just over the bay from me. He's been in and out of administrations uh, for a while, too. So he knows his way around Washington, D.C., uh, he was on the show earlier this year. Uh, he has a magnificent new book out, Slouching Towards Utopia, An Economic History of the 20th Century, which is on a lot of uh, best books of 2022. So I'm thrilled that uh, Brad is rejoining us. Brad, um, you're an economist, so yeah. you can get beyond the data. How would you generalize your sense? We still have 10 days left of the year, but are there some pertinent economic themes of 2022 in your mind? Well, first of all, it's very confusing. Um, you say it normal people is. have a hard time figuring out what's going on in the economy and the markets especially. And we economists don't have any easier time figuring out what, what's going on. Um, I suppose really because there are three things going on. Right. First, there's what the actual economy is doing right now. You know, what people are making and selling and transporting and buying. And second, there is the Dr. Jekyll side of financial markets, which are people trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future and making plans and trading rights to future incomes and future assets in the financial markets right now. And third, there's the bubbleific craziness um, of all kinds of people not really understanding kind of what the long run is, but seeing there is a herd, there is a crowd, I must follow it, or I must try to lead it. And all these three things interact. And so when you're trying to get any clarity at all, it's important to figure out which of those you're talking about at any one moment. Well, you confuse me even more, Brad. Mm -hmm. Give us some clarity here. How are we going to establish a degree of clarity on 2022? In your wonderful book, Slouching Towards Utopia, uh, you had the long view of the 20th yes. century, which also included the last, I think, 30 years of the mm -hmm. 19th century. You came up with some broad themes of inequality and both the benefits, the upsides and the downsides of capitalism. Are we beyond the 20th century in 2022 in terms of your say, economic history? I would say we're beyond it and that we no longer have the extremely rapid world income growth 
that we had on average in the 20th century. And we're no longer in the business of becoming fabulously richer every year and having to figure out how to distribute and utilize our wealth. Um, instead, you know, the future of our increasing wealth is you know, shadowed by the fact that global warming is arriving and threatening to make us, or at least the unlucky among us, much, much poorer. Um, and that that's, I think, going to be the dominant thing going on for the next 50 years. You know, technology on the one hand versus a warming planet that is making all kinds of jobs unsustainable in their old forms on the other. That said, you know, 2022 was a very, very good year for the world economy. Um, the one thing that went wrong with it was Vladimir Putin's... Um, the attack of Muscovy on Kiev, I suppose, since they're both parts of Great Rus, um, and the economic, con not just the human consequences of that for Ukraine, as kind of skill killer robots stalk the skies, but the economic consequences for the world. And it looked, it looked at the start as though we were going to have mass famine in Nigeria and Egypt, and as if people were going to freeze to death in Germany um, and Denmark. We've avoided that. Um, we've had an unpleasant wealth transfer from consumers of energy, especially, especially natural gas, and an unpleasant wealth transfer from mostly relatively poor people relying on Ukrainian and Russian grain to eat um, to those who have what little's come out and managed to sell it. Um, but the big downsides that were feared to come from the the big economic downside ripples that were feared to come from Putin's attack on Ukraine, you know, have not materialized. Everyone's managed to adjust well enough. And aside from that, you know, the world economy powered on in 2022, getting people worldwide, except in China, back to work after the plague and, you know, getting them back to work in a new and better economic configuration for the future one in which there are more people actually making goods and there are fewer people serving as sales clerks and waiters and there are more people, you know, driving delivery vans and programming up websites. You mentioned uh, the dark times ahead in terms of the environment, but there's an interesting piece in the New York Times this morning about the takeoff of electric cars in business terms yes. and maybe potentially the, the battery industry too. Yes. Is it possible, Brad, that we're at the beginnings of a new cycle in, in economic terms, um, a boom in, uh, in the green economy? Or is that something that's somewhat delusionary? Well, we had better have a huge boom in the green economy. Um, because if not, you know, the world is going to get unpleasantly warm. Um, and something like California... California's Central Valley agriculture would be only one of the casualties, as you know, if we continue with business as usual, pumping greenhouse gases out into the atmosphere, um, you know, global warming will then turn California's Central Valley into a northern extension of the Mojave Desert in 40 years, and next to nothing will grow there, um, which you know, would be a huge agricultural economic disaster. So we better invest in non-carbon emitting energy technologies, and that means a huge boom for the green economy. Um, whether that is a 
net minus or a net plus for the rest of the economy, putting global warming to one side, depends really on how fast our battery and our solar and our wind technologies and our other technologies advance. And over the past decade, the world, the word on that has been absolutely amazingly, wonderfully good. You know, more technological progress in closed cycle and in non-carbon energy than I would have thought we were going to get in 40. Um, and yet we've gotten it all and now we simply have to deploy it and put it to work. You know, and deploying it and putting it to work means major, major massive investments and that's going to cause a boom in the green energy sector. Brad, you haven't used the I word yet, inflation. Um, on your grasping reality um, newsletter, uh, you had an interesting piece about the, the Federal Reserve uh, bank or board and their behavior in economic terms. Has 2022, will economic historians, when they're looking back at 2022, is it a year in economic terms defined by what the feds did and didn't do in terms of interest rates? Yeah, well, I seem to have a view that's a little bit unpopular, which is that um, so far at least, Jay Powell and his Federal Open Market Committee um, have pretty much done things perfectly, right? That there are complaints that they moved late, you know, um, and after the fact, yes, they did move late. But at the time, there was a danger that people were not going to start spending all of their kind of plague year extra income benefits that they'd all stored up in the banks in 2021 and early 2022, and for the Federal Reserve to have moved faster at to have started raising interest rates much earlier um, would have run the risk of putting us back in the situation we were at in 2010, um, when we have a deeply depressed economy and there seems to be no good way to get people back to work because you know, the private sector isn't spending anymore. And so Jay Powell waited to start raising interest rates until it was clear that that was not a possibility. Um, and moving earlier would have taken massive, massive risks. And so I think he did the right thing um, then. Then there is move fast, and there were great worries that the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates too fast and that something big in the financial system would break. Um, and yes, a few things in the alternate financial system have broken. Um, the Terra Luna stablecoin cryptocurrency, Sam Bankman-Fried. Right, I want to come to Bankman-Fried. I'm curious um, on your take on that one. Yeah, but, you know, and, you know, Binance and Tether are all things that seem to me too much like Wiley Coyote after he's run off the edge of the cliff and hasn't yet realized that there's no rock but rather air underneath him. And when he looks down, he's going to fall. Um, but those haven't had any big impact on whether people can get and keep their jobs or not. You know, those have been confined, confined to the lucky or the unlucky gamblers um, at the edge of the economy. Um, and now it looks as though, or at least financial markets expect, that we're going to get back to 2% inflation pretty quickly over the next couple of years, with only at worst a minor um, recession and a small rise in the unemployment rate. 
It's interesting, Brad, that you say you're in a minority in terms of being more optimistic of uh, the behavior of the Fed. Do you think that, and I tend towards pessimism, in fact, after your piece, after doing the show, um, mm -hmm. uh, I wrote my own piece suggesting that bad times are ahead. Do you think even economists are prone to a natural tendency towards pessimism? Well, it is called the dismal science, right? And it's not called the dismal science for no reason. Um, because one of our economist shticks, you know, is that there's always a there's always a trade-off and you cannot have all the good things and that resources you devote to trying to get one good thing are often going to make it impossible um, for you to get other good things. So we have a very natural bias to see, you know, the... Um, dark cloud around every silver lining. Um, that said, however, you know, yes, the 2022 looks very, very good in terms of getting people back to work and keeping people in work in kind of the jobs, the best jobs for them that we can do right now. And that all of our economist worries are about things that are going to happen or that might happen or that we fear will happen in the future. How much of this can we credit Joe Biden? Um, there's a new book out called The Gatekeepers uh, about Biden presidency and its author uh, suggests that the Biden presidency is the most consequential in his lifetime. Uh, he's talking about Biden. His legislative record is comparable to LBJ's and he's been underestimated every step of the way. Outside politics, in economic terms, is Biden doing a good job, Brad? I would say Biden is doing a good job. Um, I would say the ability of Biden to do a better job is greatly hobbled by the fact that he does not have the relatively loyal, um, you know, the relatively loyal large congressional majorities that both LBJ and FDR had, and that or that Ronald Reagan had during his first two years. And the lack of those kind of reliable legislative majorities has meant that um, Biden's legislative successes have been the result of, um, A, his ability to turn down the heat on important issues, though that things that are enormous wins for America and for him, you know, are not seen as wins by the press um, and by the people who listen to the press. And also his ability to convince Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, um, that is Nancy Pelosi is at the house eating out of the palm of her hand for the past two years, um, his ability to persuade those two senators, those two kind of on the fence Democratic senators, that this is a good thing to do and this is the closest to what they would like to see that is attainable. And I think he has managed to do a magnificent job in all of those. And that shows great political skill as well as a good deal of luck. I'm not the most consequential president of anyone's lifetime. But, you know, he's not in a position where he could be that. And he's been, I think, vastly more effective than anyone else I can think of who wound up in this particular hot seat at this particular moment would have been. When we think back... So FDR, we obviously think of the New Deal, LBJ, we think of a great society, Reagan, we think about 
unshackling, at least in his language, the markets. Are there any meta economic trends that you think later historians will give Biden the credit of? Are there things that he's trying to do with our economy? Maybe for political reasons, as you're suggesting, it's very hard for him to do. Does he have a new deal, a great society, um, a neoliberal vision of some sort? I mean, in, 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 in the context of previous effective uh, presidents? Um, I think that in 50 years, when historians write about the Biden administration, um, they will talk primarily about how Al Gore and Bill Clinton got within one Senate vote in 1993 um, of starting the United States' you know, reaction to deal with global warming. Um, and they failed. They failed by one Senate vote. You know, you had 43 Republican senators in opposition and seven, at least at least eight Democratic senators in opposition and maybe more. You know, it's always hard to tell what's really going on in the Senate. And then after that, for um, 30 years, you know, effectively, the U.S. took no action. Um, while it should have been leading the world in fighting global warming. And then Biden started started doing the job. Um, and I think that will be seen as the most consequential thing that the Biden presidency did. You know, the second most consequential would be what my friends call supply-side progressivism, um, reorienting the federal government, you know, not as something that, as Ronald Reagan said, needs to get out of the way, but rather that something whose support for research development for infrastructure and also for kind of breaking up various cartels that are blocking America from becoming a more productive place, um, breaking up those cartels. And so putting the government on the side of economic growth in a big and technological growth in a big way. Again, Like me, Brad, I'm guessing you're not a big fan of Donald Trump, but um can Trump, and if he was on the show, he no doubt would take credit for everything good that's happened in 2022. Can he take any credit in, in terms of the, the legacy, the economic legacy of, 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 of the Trump administration? Did he put the American economy on a, on a, on a firmer, more positive trajectory? Um, well, I think economically he did three major things, right? Um, that he started a trade war with China, um, that he passed a large tax cut for profit income, tax cut on capital gains and on corporate pass-through income. Um, and I don't know, did he... Did he browbeat Jay Powell into being a less aggressive, um, contractionary Federal Reserve chairman, a less hard money Federal Reserve chairman than a Republican Fed chairman typically is? Um, and as for the third, as for making Jay Powell... Um, for making Jay Powell as Fed chairman act much more like we would have expected a 
a Janet Yellen or a Lael Brainerd to act as Fed chair. You know, I don't see how that's really an accomplishment um, for Trump because, you know, he could have picked um, Lael or he could have picked Janet um, as his Fed chair. And so browbeating Jay Powell seems to have been something that you know, he had to do because he'd chosen Jay Powell in the first place. Um, so that strikes me as a zero. Um, the capital gains tax cut, you know, we heard all kinds of things from Republican economists and others about how absolutely great it was going to be and how corporations were going to take all this extra income they were getting and they were going to pour it into investment. And we would have had as big an investment boom as we had in the Clinton years. Yeah. You know, and zero of it showed up. Um, that yes, we we increased corporate profits enormously, but as near as we can see, every single cent went into share buybacks and thus went into the pockets of equity investors, which is wonderful if you have a large position in the stock market, but you know, it was not sold as something that would make stock market investors much, much richer by lowering their taxes. It was sold as something that would boost investment in America, you know, and it didn't even before the plague came around. And as for the um the trade war with China, right? I mean, the plan was to do the Trans-Pacific Partnership and thus get every one of other of China's major trading partners on our side and then have the Trans-Pacific Partnership countries renegotiate with China from a position of strength because, you know, who else is China going to trade for with when all of its other trading partners, big trading partners are in the TPP? Um, and instead, Donald Trump blew up the TPP on day one and then went to China and said, now you need to negotiate seriously on trade. And the, the Chinese looked at him and said, look, um, you've just disarmed yourself. You have just eliminated all of the leverage you had for getting us to agree um, with you on trade issues. We're going to ignore you. And if you impose tariffs, you know, we're going to trade with somebody else. Um, if you won't let our goods in, well, then we're going to stop buying your soybeans and we're going to buy Brazil's soybeans instead. That, you know, um, what's his name? Republican economist Douglas Holtzikin, who's someone who can always be counted on to say something good about a Republican um, policymaker. The best he'll say about Donald Trump was that the um, tax cut should have boosted investment in America, but it didn't because the trade war with China did an offsetting amount of damage that discouraged people from investing in America. Um, so I'd say Trump was lucky in the economy he had until the plague came along, um, rather than actually doing something constructive. You know, what I think Trump does deserve huge amounts of credit for is for Operation Warp Speed. You know, that kind of managing to compress the vaccine development and approval timeline from five years to nine months was, you know, an amazing accomplishment and one that has saved the lives of tens of millions of people around the world. Um, and, you know, but he doesn't want credit for that. Right. Um, and so that at least puzzles me greatly. Well, you're not the first or the last person, Brad, to be puzzled by what 
goes on in Donald Trump's head. We had Orville Shell, one of your, uh, you, I'm sure you know him from the Berkeley uh, Journalism School, on the yeah. show, one of America's leading experts on China. Yes. He, yes. he credits Trump. He, he's a bit more generous on Trump when it comes to China policy, economics. He's very sympathetic to the the chip war we had. Chris Miller on the show as well, who talked, who's written this excellent this is book. A on brilliant, it. brilliant, excellent, excellent. Yeah, wonderful. he's a wonderful young guy. Um, is that one of uh, one of Biden's economic accomplishments? This uh, this aggressive uh, trade war with China. The fact that turning it from being steel and soybeans into yeah, semiconductors and artificial intelligence. Um, you know, th that the, the Trump kind of, to the extent that Trump backed into, you know, what, Biden is now doing with respect to Chinese access to United States controlled parts of the great semiconductor value chain. He backed into that because Huawei was caught violating the sanctions against Iran just because they were stupid and greedy. Um, but now, no, no, I'm. I don't know. There seems to be a very strong belief among the national security community in the United States that, you know, we really, really need to be very careful about letting China acquire the capabilities to have a first class artificial intelligence piece of its economy because the potential military implications of being at the forefront of AI technology um, are potentially so large. And, you know, this, this, this to some degree, um, this to some degree scares me because I think of that and I think, you know, gee, killer robots, um, that doesn't seem to me to be a happy or a good world we're moving into. Um, and I'm also not sure the actual military applications of these technologies are going to be that great, that they're wonderful prediction machines, they're wonderful analysis machines. Um, but the national security community decided on this and after Xi Jinping announced that he had a no-limits partnership with Russia, and after the Kremlin then invaded Ukraine, it was quite clear that a China that is supporting a Russia that is launching a major conventional invasion of its neighbor is a country that has shifted from one whose military is an object of worry to one whose military is an object of great concern. Um, and so I cannot say that there is a sufficient reason to say that Biden has made a mistake here. I would say that it is not at all clear how it is going to turn out in the end. Um, as we shift from a 
from an international politics of let's let everyone's economy grow as fast as possible and help that along to an international politics, political economy of we need your economy to be weaker in high tech because we do not trust how you are going to use your military. And we need to make sure that economic interdependence cannot be weaponized against us uh, by bringing much more of the global value chains we depend on back into our country and into the country of our close allies with whom we feel philosophically aligned. Um, it's a big shift. You know, I think if I were going to say, I would add that as the third of the major things that's likely to come from the Biden administration. You know, but as Joe Enlai is supposed to have said about yeah. whether the French Revolution was a good thing or a bad thing, um, it is still too early to tell. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to be cheeky, Brad, and ask you for your economic prediction of 2023, because Borrowing from Cho and Live, I think that would be unwise. Yes. But um, I will ask you about where you see the economic debate going. With tw in twenty twenty three, the next presidential election is going to become increasingly colourful and relevant. You describe Biden or Bidenism as a supply side progressivism, which sounds to me, as a non economist, uh, as if Biden wants to have his cake and eat it. Yes. Where yeah, where yeah. is the future economic argument of the Republicans? Let's say Trump either chooses not to run or uh, is is dismissed by the voters. DeSantis, for example, has he has he revealed his economic hand? What's the what's going to be the critique of of, of this supply side progressivism from the Republican Party? What would you predict in 2023? I don't know, right? I mean, I mean, the Republican Party economic agenda since Reagan um, has been we need tax cuts for the rich. Um, and, you know, I don't think that really was the right diagnosis even back in 1981. And, you know, the complete failure of the Trump kind of yet to another round of tax cuts for the rich to actually boost investment at all. It, you know, that's what Paul Krugman calls a zombie idea, right? Something that really has not been alive for decades and yet is still somehow shambling around. And what other economic policies... Um, the Republican Party has it. It simply does not have. It simply does not have any. Right? It's <laughs> it's instead it's culture war after culture war that you know someone else is you know um you know someone else is taking the stuff that ought to be yours um, or is destroying your life. You know, that in the case of Mike Pence, right back that, you know, um, that the Disney movie Milan is actually a plot to kind of make your girls unwomanly, um, was one of Mike Pence's big shticks for the rural people of Indiana, I think, back before he became governor of Indiana and so forth. You know, that for DeSantis, you know, the big 
thing the people of Florida should be worried about besides illegal immigrants um, is that the Walt Disney Corporation is disrespectful to their values. Um, and hence, we're going to force them into court and wind up having to pay in the end to pay them very large amounts of money um, for breaking of the contracts that the state has made with them. You know, I mean, there was a Sam's Club Republicanism that actually would try to talk about, you know, serious deregulation and seriously boosting relatively poor people's access um, to education. But I haven't heard any of that in a very, very long time, right? Um, that in Trump, it was always that, you know, Mexicans and Mexicans are coming here and taking your jobs and people from China are working too hard over there and taking your jobs and we need to fight them and I will defend you and I will also make sure that your domestic and your foreign enemies suffer. And, you know, I don't think DeSantis, um, I really do not think DeSantis is managing, you know, to get beyond that. Um, and I do not see energy um, in the Republican Party on an economic policy that is anywhere else, you know, anywhere other um, than in the Trump-DeSantis wing. Uh, who was it? It was yo know, Ed Luce, who, like me, is a kind in of the Financial uh, Times. Yeah, yeah. He was a frequent um, guest on this show too. All right, all right. Um, well, what did Ed say? Yeah. All right. Um, fossil fuel Christian nationalism, whose enemies are tech oligarchs, big pharma, finance endorsing environmental sustainable activities, corporate media, and elite universities. And, you know, an economics of we have enemies and they're rich is not one that's likely to actually produce economic growth. Could we describe, Brad, as the, the economic policy of the Republican Party then as dismal unscience? <laughs> that's very nice. Can I steal that and use that? 